Welcome to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Matt Buzateri. This week, we'll be talking with Lane DeGregory about her article, The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuck. Lane DeGregory is a feature writer for the Tampa Bay Times. She's won dozens of national awards, including the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for her story, The Girl in the Window. Now, I'm just going to come out and be totally honest here. Lane DeGregory is one of my favorite nonfiction writers. Uh, if I have a Mount Rushmore of narrative nonfiction writers, Lane is, is on that mountain. Um, and the reason I love her and her writing so much is that I think, first and foremost, she's just a really gifted storyteller. And she finds these little gems of stories and then just writes them beautifully. Uh, some of her stories include that there's a story about uh, someone found a bottle with a note in it in the Tampa Bay area, and they track down what happened to the boy that wrote the note. She has another story about a 99-year-old man who still goes to work every day and why he does that and what's that like. Uh, she wrote another story that I love about a young couple that rides a bus for two days leaving Wisconsin for a new life in Florida and what happens to them when they get here, when they see the beach for the first time, and what happens as they start to build a new life in Florida. Uh, she even has a recent story that, that just appeared a couple weeks ago, which is about two young kids that are working together at a county fair. She's also written some longer nonfiction articles, one of the best being the one that won her the Pulitzer Prize in 2009, The Girl in the Window. And it looks at a young girl that had been horribly neglected, lost by the system, and what happens when they try to get her out of a horrible situation and find a new family for her. I recommend it to everyone. Uh, it's linked in the show notes and on the website, and I hope you'll check it out as well. So needless to say, I'm thrilled to have Lane on the show. And today we're going to be talking about The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuck. It was published in January this year, and it looks at the life and tragic death of five-year-old Phoebe Johnchuck, who was murdered by her father, who dropped her off the side of a bridge. Here is a brief excerpt from the story. The PT cruiser veered right, then at the top of the Dick Mesner Bridge, stopped on the shoulder. A bulky man with dark, disheveled hair climbed out of the driver's side, wearing plaid pajamas, carrying a big black book. Get back in the car, the officer yelled. The man kept coming, walking in front of the cop. He was a car length away. He yelled, you have no free will. Then he walked to the rear passenger door of the car and ducked inside. The sergeant raised his glock and shouted, Let me see your hands! Instead of pulling a weapon, the man emerged holding a child. The girl's face was pressed into his shoulder. Long curls spilled across her back. Along the span, yellow-green lights blinked. Cars blurred by. Palm trees bowed in the wind. More than 62 feet below, whitecaps licked the dark water. The officer saw the man walk towards the guardrail. He saw the child stretch against him like she was waking up. She must have wondered where she was and why she was so cold. She nestled against her father as he held her there, between the dark and the water, the two things she dreaded most. Without losing eye contact with the cop, with the officer's gun still pointed at him, the man carried the girl to the edge of the bridge and hoisted her over the concrete wall. The officer heard a faint scream then a splash. If you haven't already read this story, not a problem. The link to the article is in the show notes and on the podcast website. 
Go ahead, pause the show, come back when you've read it. Otherwise, as always, here's the fair warning. We will be discussing the story, so details might get spoiled for you. And with that, here's my interview with Lane DeGregory. I'm talking with Lane DeGregory. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning feature writer with the Tampa Bay Times. Earlier this year, her story, The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnshuck, was published, and we're talking about it today. Lane, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. So in other interviews, I saw that you originally did not want to write about this incident. Tell me how you wound up writing this story. Yeah, I actually really didn't want to write this story. Um, I've been without an editor since January of 2015. Our editor left, and so I was reporting directly to the managing editor. And she called me in her office one day and told me she had this idea that she wanted me to do a story about the life of a little girl who'd been dropped off the bridge. And I told her that I didn't want to do that because I didn't think it had any hope. And I thought everybody already knew that story. And everybody especially would remember the ending, um, a dad dropping his little girl off the bridge. You don't forget about that. So about a day or two later, the um, editor-in-chief of the paper called me and asked me to go have beers with him after work. And he said, hey, I've got this great story idea for you. And I was like, no. (laughs) I, I really don't want to do that story. I, I told him the same reasons, and I, I, I told him I I really like doing, I mean, I do a lot of super sad stories, but usually they have some hope or some ability to change something or at least fix or make people think about things in a different way. And mm-hmm. so he was like, well, don't worry about hope. You know, <laughs> actually, those weren't his exact words, but <laughs> he, uh, he laughed at me sort of when I, I said I needed hope. And he said, um, you know, we thought it was an important story. And yes, we'd written... Well, in Florida, they'd written 71 stories about this incident already uh, by the time they asked me to do this story about six months after it happened. So then a couple of days go by and the publisher of the paper um, takes me out to lunch. Now, he's never taken me out to lunch, <laughs> just me and him. And um, it was a very nice, you know, white linen napkin lunch. And um, he said, I need you to come to the dark side lane. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he expressed very eloquently why he thought it was important to to write about this little girl's life and what had led up to this tragic event and not just have her be a generic figure of a a body dropped off a bridge. Um, And that hopefully it would illuminate some things that could be changed or fixed that might've gone wrong in Phoebe's case. So I started doing the story at the beginning of June. I I didn't think I could say no to the publisher. So, (laughs) Right. And um, I want to dive into a lot of the details about the reporting and, and some of the nuts and bolts of the writing in the piece. But but as a big picture question, I'm wondering, you spent seven months working on this story, which is focusing on a father murdering his five-year-old girl. I'm wondering how that affected you personally. Was this a really depressing period to go through all this and delve into all these details? It, it was. Thank you for asking that question. Um, yeah. And, and I was going through, I have two boys myself and my oldest one was graduating from high school the week I got assigned this story so I was also going through this weird like grieving letting go process of him going away to college throughout those months and then losing him in the fall and then my other son's going to graduate this year so I had my own mom things going on about losing my children or or letting go you know and then here's this dad that just dumps his daughter it was and the, the more we reported it the more we found out just bad, sad, evil stuff, you know, and, right. and it kind of got worse as we got into it. So yeah, it was a really depressing story to work on for so long. Mm-hmm. Describe how you researched and reported this story. As you mentioned, there'd already been a lot of coverage of the news of this event. And I'm curious about how you decided to tackle 
the bigger picture story about Phoebe and her dad and, and all the issues that surround this. Yeah, I wasn't sure, you know, what the story was going to be when I got into it. I knew they wanted to know more about Phoebe's life, but there's just so much you can write about a five-year-old that you can't talk to, you know. So we started out, I got all the um, all the evidence files from the court and cops reporters who'd covered the initial stories. And there was actually a lot, a lot, a lot in there in the investigations. And then the photographer, videographer, Cherie Diaz, and I went to the courthouses. So there were... This is maybe too much information, but the, there were like five different courts you had to go to mm-hmm. to look him up. And there was a criminal court, a traffic court, a domestic um, family court, um, a civil court and a misdemeanor court. And so we had to go to all these different courts. And there was a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff that you could just pull up through public records about seven domestic violence charges and five times that the D- the Department of Children and Families had visited Phoebe and Everybody in the family, when you started to make a family tree, everybody had a record. And so you could go track down one person and it would lead you to another person. So a, a lot of the first few days was like in courts with paperwork. And I made a big list of uh, the, the police also included a witness list, which was helpful. But I made a big list between all of these documents and all the 71 stories that had been written and all of the, the police stuff about all the people I wanted to talk to. And there were more than 100 people on that initial list. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started trying to prioritize and this was like the first week of June. And I knew from my own kids that they were going to be at a school in just a couple of days. So the first person I decided to try to go see was Phoebe's kindergarten teacher. I might have started with the family otherwise, but I knew school was going to be out and I didn't want the summer to come and the classroom to get changed. You know, I wanted to see if her name was still on her desk or her cubby and what was on the walls of the classroom and talk to her kindergarten teacher, you know, in that space as it was where Phoebe sat. So that's where I started. I started with the kindergarten teacher. And I saw in the notes at the end of the story that you did try to reach out and talk to the father. And he did indicate at some point that he was going to talk to you, but he didn't. Yeah. Through the course of the reporting, his mother had become pretty close to us. She she let us in after a lot of pushing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she had ended up talking to him. He called her um, often from the mental institute. And we told her how much we wanted to talk to him. And she... We couldn't call him. I mean, I called. There was a phone number in the day room, but I could never get him. So he had to initiate that. And I wrote letters and everything. But she had arranged for him to call us through her phone on like a Sunday afternoon at about one o'clock. And I think we waited till almost five and he never did call. So I don't know, you know, if he changed his mind. She told me that someone in the mental institute told him not to talk to reporters but yeah, that was a disappointment. I'd right. really hope to talk to him. Had he called you, what would you have asked him? Well, that's a good question. I, I thought about that a lot. I think I would have just asked him initially, like, what happened that night? Mm-hmm. You know, real, real broad. Um, there were so many different people theorizing, and, and it, it, it did seem like he wanted attention and was trying to get people to pay attention in those last few days. So I just wonder what what his story would be now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how I've asked this to a, a couple of the people I've interviewed for the show. I'm wondering, how did you know when you had enough material? How did you know when you were ready to start piecing it all together as a story? Because I had a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I literally, I, I would have ideally liked to report this story for another three or four months. There were a lot of stones that were left unturned or people like I, I never cracked open. Um, but they wanted the story first. They wanted the story to run the beginning of December 
Um, and then they ran into some production problems with other projects and designer people and copy editors and holidays. And they didn't want to run the story over Christmas because it was too depressing. So they ended up holding it to the anniversary, which was the first week of January. And, um, and that was about as late as it should have run. You know, if it was going to run at, at any time, it should have been by the anniversary, I think. So I, I just I had to stop and start writing at a certain point. Right. I've talked to some writers that compile all this research and then they start writing. And then I spoke with other writers who've talked about, they like to write bits as they go. They interview a little bit or they do some research and they write little chunks of the piece and start to stitch them together. How do you approach getting started once you've started to get this massive research? Yeah, every year for like the past 10 years, I've told myself I'm going to start writing in the middle of reporting and I never have. <laughs> um, I, I gather a ton, a ton of stuff. I probably had um, a dozen legal pads of notes and about 15, you know, legal manila folders full of court documents and, and records and stuff. And I basically like spread them all out on my bed and, and go through them all. I spent about two days going through them and sort of cataloging them and organizing them and putting sticky notes and paper clips on them. And then making, I made a big timeline, like an eight page timeline um, and a cast of characters and then a list of scenes, which weren't all that many because there was not a lot to witness. It was most mostly reported. Usually I like to like witness stuff I report, but right. this was a lot of regurgitating. Um, so I had I had those, I had like, I guess I had a, a timeline, a cast of characters and a list of scenes. And then I took notes on my notes um, and then I put everything away. I like stuck it in my car and I don't write with my notes. I, I write from my head and then I go back and fill in the blanks so that's what I did I spent probably five or six days just straight through writing it and and how do you and how do you do it I mean do you go linearly through the story do you start with scenes do you kind of take that outline and do key parts of it yeah I, I kind of do top to bottom and I talked about it with my editor was Kelly Benham French she's a wonderful friend mm -hmm. and a great writer and I trust yeah. her entirely and so she and I had talked through the story we knew it was going to be in three parts we knew where each part was going to be, uh, begin and where each part was going to end with some kind of a you know a cliffhanger or a statement to make people wonder so I sort of had that structure in mind um and I we went back and forth a little bit about where to start it because well I was I was kind of stymied by the fact that I thought everybody knew the ending. You know, a lot of stories I really like are the ones where I can surprise people somehow with an ending. Right. And I thought everybody already knew the ending of this story. So I decided to start with the ending and sort of like the most dramatic moment and give it up and say, okay, people, you think you know this story? You know, here's the part you know. And then hopefully by the end of that uh, section, the first section, make them want to know more, you know, the backstory to it. Um, so Kelly and I went back and forth about whether it should the first section should end with him dropping her or just end with him holding her over the edge of the bridge, or if we should just start with him walking away after he dropped her. Right. So those are the three kind of places we, we played with. Huh. And um, how did you decide on, on the opening that, that you finished with? Well, I wrote all three. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, and and the, the first, you know, I got the first one. I, I really, really, really work hard on my opening scenes. And so I got it pretty polished. Um, and then we just had that one line, like he held her over the edge of the bridge and let go. And we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about whether we should have him and let go. So that those three words were kind of what we, we fooled around with a lot. Um, she kind of liked the idea of starting with him driving away after he dropped her. Right. But I, I thought I needed to show you, I needed to show the readers him 
grabbing her out of bed. I mean, to me, like as a parent, that was the beginning of the end was like, who wakes a sleeping five-year-old, you know, on a mm-hmm. school night and scoops her out of her bed in the middle of the night. That, that to me, that was the most vivid beginning of that scene. So that's where I decided to start. Right. And and the structure of the story is broken up into three chapters. There's the, the sort of the before, the, the actual, the day, her final day, and then sort of the aftermath of it. Was that always the way the story was going to be organized? Or was that like the limit? Was that sort of how the story was going to be published as three parts in the in the newspaper? Yeah, that from the beginning, we talked about the before, during and after parts. Um, and we thought initially it might run in the um, on the A section on three different days. So we were trying to divide it up so that it could have, you know, each day could have a little cliffhanger and then a new beginning. And then they decided to run it in one single section, which was fine. But um you know, it, it, the, the structure had been decided when we were initially thinking it might run, run as a serial, like a three-day, three-part mm-hmm. series. It's interesting. You were talking about that opening scene on the bridge. It actually appears twice in the story that it's the opening of the first chapter and this kind of riveting introduction to what the story is about. And then you kind of echo it at the end of the second chapter where that story takes you through that final day and ends up on the bridge. And you retell that story from a slightly different perspective. And I'm curious if you could kind of explain that, like how you guys approached redoing that scene almost like from a different angle. Yeah, I I had when I initially wrote the opening scene, it had a lot more details in it Mm -hmm. about like I I slowed it down a lot more. And Kelly thought probably rightly so that we needed to get pretty quickly through that moment at the beginning. We didn't have time to take the readers all the way back. And we wanted to save something for when we got to that moment in the real time of the narrative. Mm-hmm. So initially I was going to tell the the second telling of it through the policeman's eyes because he was such a untapped and wonderful character. But it, it seemed like when I wrote it like that, that it shifted too much. The perspective shifted too much. So I decided to keep people in the car, you know, right. the, the beginning, the opening real short one, I really wanted to tell it from Phoebe's perspective. Um, and they ended up cutting some stuff out about what she was feeling and, and, and what she was seeing because they said, we can't be certain of that. I was pretty certain from what the policeman said and the evidence photos and stuff, but um, they backed off that a little bit so that it couldn't really be told from her perspective the way that I wanted to. I wondered about that. There was a line that, that struck me in that second telling of the scene where you write, she must have wondered where she was and why she was so cold. And I imagine this must have been a difficult thing to kind of figure out how do you express what it must have been like from her perspective when obviously you weren't able to ask her. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, my favorite part of storytelling is when you can get inside your character's head and, and tell it from their perspective with some authority. And usually with the right amount of interviewing, I can come close to that. But this one, my only chance was through the policeman, right. um, and what he had witnessed. And, and um, he was pretty, you know, he was pretty detail oriented about that night and, and very emotional, which was helpful. But we kind of went back and forth, actually, in a group of editors, a lot of people looked at this story before it finally came out, and a group of people were like, well, we can't say what she was thinking, but yes, hell yes, we can say she was cold. It was cold that night, you know. We She must have wondered where she was going in the middle of the night. That was, right. we had to come to a consensus about what was or wasn't known. Yeah. One thing I really admire about the writing in this story is that you tend to mostly write in very sort of short simple sentences it's not real flowery writing 
And yet you pepper those with these really concrete details, these very specific details that kind of flesh things out. So some examples I, I found from earlier in the piece, you say, you know, she would just stand still and stare. She liked apple juice and Cheerios, sparkly pink sneakers and books about dogs. And then a little later in the piece, you say, he was a good father, friends said, who taught Phoebe how to count trees, paint their tiny toenails pink, and loved sharing slurpees that stained their lips blue. And then later on, you talk about the gifts she got for Christmas, the Play-Doh, the scrapbook kit, bottles of bubbles, a sparkle girls with a Z doll. How much do you, obviously you seek those kind of details out. How many do you leave out of a piece? How do you know which ones to put in? I, I love that you read the sentence about the Slurpees because that was my favorite detail I got. Yeah. <laughs> I love that that stuck out to you. Um, I, yeah, I had a ton, a ton of stuff that didn't get in there. I wrote 20,000 words and the piece <sighs> ran at a little bit over 10. Right. So over half of it got cut out. Uh, a lot of it being details. And Kelly and I kind of did this little dance where I, she'd take something out and I'd say, okay, but then we got to put this back in. <laughs> you know, and I, I was trying really hard. I, I think part of the job of a, a feature writer is to make the ordinary seem extraordinary and the mm -hmm. extraordinary seem ordinary, right? And so this guy was so evil in so many ways that he was almost cartoon-like. Like you almost right. couldn't make up somebody who was so inherently mean so i was trying really hard to find details that would humanize him right um and th initially the a lot of the stories that we ran and the other papers ran just quoted his friends saying he was a good dad yeah. um and not giving any examples so I, I pushed really hard when i talked to five of his friends um who he'd lived with over the years and i was pushing them really hard for specific details about what did he do that made him a good dad or that would have maybe make people think he was a good dad you know and I like, you know, the, I think for every detail you get, there's another a level of it. You know, he, he liked to go to 7-Eleven with her all the time. Okay, what did, he, what did he get? He got Slurpees. Okay, what kind of Slurpees? You know, it just helps, <laughs> right. you, it helps you see it and taste it a little bit more to get super specific. Well, I think that as a reader, I felt like that explained a little bit because on one hand, this guy sounds like one of the most horrible people I've ever read about. On the other hand, it's clear from the story that Phoebe was attached to him and Phoebe despite that she'd witnessed abuse and she'd witnessed violence from her father and drug abuse, she still was attached to him, wouldn't be upset when he would leave. And I think some of those details at least kind of give you a little bit of a picture that it wasn't always violence and terror, but there were moments that, even though I don't want to relate to this guy, that I can relate to him in a little bit that a father and daughter have some connections, even over these small little things. That's, that's exactly what I was hoping to do, because I, I think... You know, no, nobody's totally inherently evil. And, and she did love him, you know, from mm -hmm. all accounts. He he was her world, for better or worse. So I, I think it was really important to to show that. And and again, I was trying to go through her eyes. Like, what would she think about, you know? Mm -hmm. what, what would she remember of doing with her dad if you asked her? Right. I also, like, all, all my stories, I want to be able to, like, taste something and feel something. And so mm -hmm. I was looking for sensory details as well. Right, right. The evidence photos were a gift with the Christmas presents in the back seat because I'd asked the grandma, like, what'd she get for Christmas? And she kind of vaguely remembered. But then we got those evidence photos of the car and it was like, holy cow, you can tell exactly what color Play-Doh she got, you know? Oh, wow. hmm. I, I think another strength of the story is that you have a lot of scenes that drive the story. You have the meeting in the lawyer's office. You have the, the scene on the bridge that we've talked about. You have Officer Vickers trying to find Phoebe after she'd been dropped. Um, you have the, the the young woman that was searching for her in the water and ultimately found her body. 
Um, and there's a number of other scenes like that. And, and as you mentioned, you had to cut about half of the original story you wrote. I'm wondering how you how you make these final calls on which scenes you just can't live without and which ones you may love, but they just don't fit or can't fit. Yeah, a lot of that was with Kelly's help. She did this thing that I've never had an editor do. where We printed out the whole story. And I think it was about 20 pages long and we spread it across my dining room table and it didn't, it didn't fit. And she sure. goes, Lane, we have to like, we have to cut this to make it fit on your table. I was like, Oh, I have an extra leaf. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but what she did was she went through with a highlighter with different highlighters and she said, okay, this is a scene and this is information and this is a scene and this is sort of a thinking moment. And, and so we could see by color marking, how many scenes we had and how long they were. And that really helped in terms of trying to find balance. So this scene went on for too long and we cut it down to, you know, a page instead of a page and a half, or now we'd had a whole lot of background information without any kind of scene. So let's cut that and put some more scene in here. She was very judicious about that. And, you know, I, I fall in love with a lot of things. I have a hard time letting go. So right. I kind of let her have the first big giant crack at it. And then I went back through with her and argued some back in and took some more out. We we had a, a lot, lot more about the grandmother, about Mama's background, and probably one of the saddest scenes I've ever reported and written and was totally in love with, and I might have to use someday if I ever write fiction because <laughs> you couldn't make it up, you know? But Kelly felt like we were getting too far away from Phoebe to tell Mama's whole story. Um, so that was a big chunk of what we cut out at the beginning to kind of focus it more on John and 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 fast forward through the grandma's background. Right. Yeah, the story obviously focuses on Phoebe and her father, but it also delves into some of the larger issues of, of the social systems and uh, the, the role of the state in protecting children from dangerous situations. How did you guys balance keeping the story, you know, where it touches on those issues, but it's not over overwhelmed by that or that it stays focused on on more of the, the narrative of Phoebe. I guess I'm wondering, this could have easily gone into a much broader attack or discussion of the system, but it kind of just touches on it briefly. Was, you know, was that something that was a difficult choice? No, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because that was my fear from the beginning. When, when the publisher took me out to lunch that day and, and basically told me I had to do this, I said to him, I, I don't want to write an expose about this system. I mean, we've got wonderful editorial writers who do that, who've done that already on this case at the beginning. And we've got a wonderful investigative team of reporters who, who dig out all the, the misdoings. And and I I could do that, but I didn't want to do that for this story. And I thought if that was what he wanted, they should have another reporter do that because I really would rather tell the human side of a story. And he was very, very kind and was like, no, 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 that's not what I want you to do. You know, you can't avoid that you can't avoid pointing that out but this isn't a story about the system failing it's about a story about what happened to a little girl and um kelly and i talked pretty early on about it was actually three levels of safety nets that failed you know if you if you think in terms of what a, a kid should be able to expect it's like first your family should take care of you the family falls apart then the the system or the state should take care of you and if that falls apart then my goodness you'd hope the community would take care of you and all, all three of those levels were failure, failures for Phoebe, and we tried to point that out, but without making it sort of a, you know, more of an indictment about the system. I, I want to talk a little bit about the ending of, of the story. You know, one of your 
you know, most famous stories is The Girl in the Window, which you mentioned a little bit earlier, which which uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. And it also focuses on a young girl that was largely failed by the system. You know, but that story, like you mentioned before, has ends on a little bit of a hopeful note. And um, this story can't end on that hopeful note because unfortunately Phoebe's gone. So instead it ends on John. And I'm curious about the scene. And I was just going to read a bit of the scene just to, for people that may not have read the piece or don't remember it. It says, a few weeks ago, just before Christmas, John's mom finally drove to Gainesville. She brought fudge. He looked good, she said. He'd been taking his meds. John asked her to bring him Phoebe's picture, the school one from kindergarten where her long curls tumble across her shoulders, her green eyes are bright, and she's flashing her little gap-toothed grin. Instead, John's mom brought her or gave him the program from Phoebe's funeral. When she had to leave, he hugged her hard. He asked, do you still love me? And that's the end of the piece. And I'm, I was really struck by this ending. And, and I'm curious about how you guys settled on this as the closing scene, the closing moment of this article. Yeah, initially it was going to end with him asking her to bring the picture. It, it ended with, and she looked so happy. That was the, the original ending for that story. Um, but when the grandmom had gone to visit him right before Christmas, it was like, you know, the very end of my reporting. The story was almost written by then. And she told me that she narrated that scene with a lot of me interviewing, but it it just struck me so much because overall it was a story about abandonment. I think if you had to find like a one word theme, what was it about? It was everybody in the story had been abandoned and as, as evil as John was and as unthinkable of a thing that he did to his child, it just, was so humanizing to me that he still wanted his mommy to love him, you know, and, and I was just haunted by that. And, and the, uh, one of the editors said, well, what did she say? What was her answer? And I was like, I don't think that's important. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the fact that he still wants her to love him after all that to right. me is it's almost like tragically shocking. You know, it's like something from a, a Tennessee Williams play or something. And, I, I wouldn't have expected that. I was very surprised by that. And I also thought it kind of, there is no hope for Phoebe. Right. And not that anybody wants to hope for John, but th there's still a need, this kind of weird human need to be loved, even by the most depraved of people is is interesting to me. Mm -hmm. The grandmom to me was the such an interesting character. Like if I was going to write a, a, a fiction story, I would totally write it about her. I mean, her, her life was so interesting and she had changed so much for Phoebe and because of Phoebe. And the whole time we were reporting the story, we were terrified that she was going to relapse and go back to drugs because oh, wow. God, if it wasn't this, that would set you off, what would it be? You know? Right. So she was very, very, very fragile. And she was also conflicted as a mother. You know, I, I kept finding myself thinking like, what, what would be something my kids would do that I wouldn't love them anymore? You know, and maybe that, <laughs> probably that. But um, yeah, it was just, it was a very unexpected tender moment between the two of them. What was her answer? Of course I do. Wow. As a, as a read of the story, when you look at the, um, the layout <clears throat> on the Tampa Bay Times website, it's got a lot of new media things, you know, the photos, the videos, some of the different presentational elements. In my day job, I do design. And so I was kind of curious, did you have any role working with the design team on how this was going to be presented once they had your text? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I have to give a big giant shout out to Alexis Sanchez. Alex is probably 23 or 24 at the most, and she's a graduate of Northwestern University. And 
she came in on this design project and and said, do you mind if I've got some ideas? And we were in this meeting and everybody went, oh my God, you can do that? Like she did that whole thing herself pretty much. I mean, she showed us prototypes and we were allowed to have input, but that was all Alex. And and Alex, you know, I'd, I'd never worked with the designer before who mined me for material as much as she did. And, you know, every time I would get it, got a, a tape of the 911 call. Oh, let me get that. You know, I've got some more evidence photos. Oh, let me get that. I've got a report from the Department of Children and Families. Oh, let me scan that. You know, and she was just as, as wonderful of a reporter and journalist as, as anybody in the newsroom. And she had that idea to sort of immerse people, not only in the story, but in the reporting of the story. So that was the first time in 25 years that I've ever done something that A, looked so beautiful and B, had so many elements that you could you could decide, she kept calling it, it's the director's cut lane. You know, (laughs) you could listen to all these primary source documents and phone calls and photographs if you wanted to. And I just, I can't tell you how excited I was to get to work with her. And and she also designed that thing. I don't know if you noticed it, but where you could bookmark yourself on the page. And if you stopped reading and you wanted to come back, it would send you an email and you'd come back to write the place where you left off. And she kind of developed that herself, which I thought was brilliant because it was a long read, you know, at one sitting, especially if you're looking on your phone or something. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm a Northwestern alum myself, so that fills me with pride and joy that she had a big role in this. Oh, sweet. Well, I have to tell you (laughs) that my son just got into Northwestern. He's going there this fall. Oh, congratulations. Go Wildcats. (laughs) Yes. Go Wildcats indeed. It's a great place. But uh, I'm curious, did you you help her make some decisions about what was displayed there? Or did you mostly sort of hands off and let her kind of take it and run with it in terms of how the story was presented? Yeah, I gave gave her all the original um, source documents and stuff as I was collecting them. And then she kind of came up with a prototype. And so we talked about like which photos should go here or which blow up quote should go here. I, I wrote the cut lines and did a lot of the blow up quote stuff. But the design and most of the elements were all her. Once the story was released in January, what kind of reaction did you get? Were you surprised by anything? I guess I was surprised by kind of how quickly it went national that I was hearing from people all over the country, which I thought it was, I was thinking it was really a Florida story. And a lot of the initial comments were from people in who had worked in the child protection system who were sort of echoing how broken things were. And yes, of course, this happened. It was bound to happen. Uh, that wasn't initially the response I thought we were going to get. The, the one that surprised me the most, I think, well, there were two. The kindergarten teacher sent a, a really beautiful and eloquent note on Facebook about how she had learned things that she never knew and it was going to help her and other teachers keep their eyes out for things differently. And that was, it was really kind to hear from her like that because she kind of, she helped us broker a lot of the initial interviews. And then the one that, that meant the most to me, I think was Phoebe's birth mom, um, Michelle Kerr texted me the morning that the story came out and, and just was so grateful she said, so many reporters have written the story, but nobody has really gotten into the details and the depth of what happened and what went wrong. And I'm so grateful that you did. And that just made me cry that, that her mother would be grateful for such a horribly sad story like that. Well, I, I can certainly understand because I think, I think you, you, you honored Phoebe with the story and the kind of careful reporting about who she was and, and what happened to her. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Lynn. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for your great questions and for talking with me. Thanks again to Lane DeGregory for coming on the show. It was a real thrill to have her on the podcast. Next week, 
I'll be talking with Oliver Rader from 538 about his story, A Million Little Boxes. It's about the world championship of crossword puzzles. You don't want to miss it. I'll link to that story in the show notes and on the website, so check it out. Finally, if you like this show, please take a minute and rate it on iTunes. If you really want to help, please write a review. Any of that will really help people discover this show and help keep us going. Thanks so much. That's it for this week. Until next time, this is Matt Puzateri, and thanks for listening to the Nonfiction Podcast.